we have come as far as uh, the second trial of Jesus, if you're following along. And I'm glad that you bought the bookstore out. There's a book called The Six Trials of Jesus. Jerry told me he tried to get a copy, but they were sold out. So everybody went and grabbed one of those. Uh, written by a professor, very interesting, takes you through all of the trials that took place uh, beginning at the house of Annas when they took Christ in the garden, and John gives us those details. And here it only mentions it in a verse, and from there he's taken to the house of Pallas of Caiaphas, who is Annas's son-in-law, appointed by the Romans because he was in cahoots with the civil government, with the Romans, more than Annas, the Jewish religious people recognized Annas as the direct lineage of Aaron and the high priest, but they detested him because he was a scoundrel that had all of the things set up in the temple courts, the money changers and so forth. So not much changes as time goes by, huh? So much the same. Um, <clears throat> I was studying, I remember studying Egypt, and one of the professors in the university in Egypt said that his students were no good. All they did was carouse and drink beer. And I thought, what's changed? And of course, they didn't have a cold one, you know, but uh, we look in these things this evening and <laughs> you think of the world is the same. Human beings have more technology now, but they're no more righteous than they've ever been. The, the problem is sinful human beings. So it tells us, let's, uh, verse 64, Jesus now, they, they put him under an oath. We, we looked at this last week. Thou hast said, said so, he's the Son of God. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, we have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. So this mock trial, completely illegal, it was never to happen in the house of Annas or the palace of Caiaphas. It was only allowed to happen in the judgment hall, which is where they're going to meet with the Sanhedrin in the morning as soon as the, the sun breaks. They were not allowed to pronounce the death sentence or have this trial at night at all. Um, they were not allowed to seek witnesses. They go out and try to find witnesses. The, the, this is the greatest body of jurisprudence in the world. The, the Jews' doctrines and statutes and laws were higher than any laws in human history. And these were the guardians. They're sitting in the seat of Moses. And they're demolishing all of that because of their hatred of Christ. He had taken away their authority and the people were following him instead of them. <clears throat> so they trump up charges, which they weren't allowed to do. They were allowed to hear if someone came to them with testimony against someone, then it was their responsibility to listen to that, to weigh that out, to hear from witnesses, and then to decide how to proceed. They were never allowed to be the ones who sought for witnesses. And they do this through the process. 
Now, here's Caiaphas, when he hears Jesus say this, tells us that he tears his garment, and we're told in Leviticus in two places, after Nadab and Abihu died, then their brethren, it says, Moses said to Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, the son, his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest you die. Lest wrath come, uh, come upon all the people, but let your brethren and the whole house of Israel bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And then it's reiterated a few chapters later, where it says, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, that is consecrated, um, to put on the garments, he shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. So the high priest was forbidden to do what he did here. He tears his garment, but it's highly significant because in a little while the veil will be torn as well. And here is the high priest tearing his garment, forbidden, because the priesthood was coming to an end. And they try, of course, to reinstate a priesthood through church history, but no longer a priesthood. You don't need anybody to stand before you in the Lord. You have access directly to the Lord because of the blood of Jesus without a priest standing between you and him. And the veil in the temple is also going to be torn, part of the process changing from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the new covenant. So there are these two tearings that are very significant. One of the high priest garment, which is forbidden, and the other one's going to be of the veil in the temple when Christ breathes his last uh, during the crucifixion. Significant to look at these things. And it says now that he is guilty of death. Here's the next problem they're going to have. In AD 6... The Romans had taken the right away from the Jews to execute capital punishment. The Jews were not allowed to kill someone. Only the Romans were allowed to do that. When the Romans took the right away from the Jews to execute the death sentence... Josephus tells us the priest, high priest, went through the streets of Jerusalem bewailing, putting ashes on his head because he said the word of God had been broken because Jacob on his deathbed had said, when he prophesying over his 12 sons, he said, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp, and from uh, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched, crouched like a lion, as, as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. So Jacob had prophesied that the scepter, that's the rule to write, would not depart from Judah until Shiloh, until Messiah came. And in AD 6, when the Romans took the right away from the Jews to execute the death sentence, the high priest went through the streets of Jerusalem, throwing ashes on his head, bewailing, saying, The word of God has been broken. 
because the scepter's been removed and Shiloh hasn't come. And of course, little did he know that in a carpenter shop in Nazareth, in fact, a young Messiah was there who was ready and to him the gathering of the people would be. Now, the other problem that they face here because they can't execute the death sentence, and this is God's work. Look, the the religious world had been overridden by the civil world. We see that happening around us. Understand God's sovereignty is involved here somewhere. He's still on the throne. He hasn't fallen off his throne. We're not allowed to sing. We're not allowed to meet. God's not seeing an analyst. He hasn't fallen off his throne. He's still in charge. And here was the same thing. He, He was in charge of this. And Psalm 22 said that the Messiah had to be crucified, not stoned to death. The means that the Jews used to execute the death sentence was stoning. And it says in Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And it talks about the the Romans gambling for his vesture. And upon my vesture they've cast lots and so forth. So it's necessary for Jesus, now that he's taken into custody, if they're going to execute this death sentence, they've found him guilty of death, he has to go to Roman hands because he, the, the, the prophecy said that he would be crucified. David wrote that when he didn't even know what crucifixion was. They pierced my hands and feet. He's not to be stoned. Now, they then are going to have to trump up civil charges against him. They're going to have to say, hey, this guy, take him to Pilate. He claims to be king. He claims to have more authority than Caesar. They have to present him as an insurrectionist. They have to present him in some way breaking Roman law for the Romans to put him to death. Because if they go to the Romans and say, and and Pilate says, what's the deal? What do you do? And they say, he's he's committing blasphemy. And uh, Pilate says, why? What's he doing? And they say he's claiming to be God. And here's Pilate looking at him, all beat up with spit all over him. You know, the, and Pilate would say, you're going to kill him because he's claiming to be God and you just beat the snot out of him? Are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. And he would have thrown them out. So they have to come up with charges that will allow the civil authorities to do their dirty work. So we watch the process here as it begins. They say he is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face. They beat him. The idea is with knuckles. That's the word for buffeted. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. Luke 22:64 tells us that he's blindfolded while all of this is taking place. And they're mocking him, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is that? Who is it that smote thee? Now Isaiah had said this. Isaiah has said, I gave my back, prophesying, to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame of their spitting. Isaiah had said again, And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than that of any man, and his form than the sons of men. He says he's beaten beyond human recognition. They're beating him with a fist. 
He can't flinch. He's blindfolded. He can't dunk, duck as a punch is coming. And they're beating him. We're told that they rip out his beard. They rip the hair off his head. The crown of thorns will move through all of the things that take place. But Isaiah had prophesied this very thing would happen. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that many of the priests come to the faith. They were here in this scene. Again, imagine the great white throne. Any of those priests that hadn't repented are going to stand there and look at the one on the great white throne who they spit on and beat and mocked. Now, it's interesting because Matthew and Luke really give us the most amount of details of this whole process with the trials. John gives us some things as well. Matthew was a tax gatherer. He knew people to talk to that would tell him the inside story. When we get to the resurrection in Matthew's gospel, he's the only gospel that tells us about the Roman soldiers that stood guard, the angel rolling away the stone, how they fled, how the priest tell, paid him off and said, told people his disciples came. Only Matthew, who had been a tax gatherer, who had a Roman soldier standing behind him as he collected taxes, had the end to find out those particular things. Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel, and no doubt it was while Paul was at Caesarea for a few years, that he came to Jerusalem and he says he interviewed eyewitness. He spoke to those that were there. And no doubt Luke has his details because he probably spoke to Joseph of Arimathea. He probably spoke to Nicodemus, and he probably was told by Paul, who was also in the scene, hey, when you, if you're, if you're going to do interviews, tell Nick and Joe I said hi. You know. So Luke has tremendous details. He probably spoke to both of those men who are believers, and he has some really interesting things to tell us about the inside story. Luke's the one that tells us they blindfolded him when they beat him, and Luke gives us some interesting details. So we're in this scene now. It's terrible. They're mocking him. They're beating him, spitting on him. And these are the religious leaders, by the way. You know, these are the people you might expect to live a little, with a little bit of integrity in their lives. And they're the most foul. They're cursing and spitting and beating a blindfolded Messiah, their Messiah. Now we're told that Peter, in verse 58, had been following a high off afar off and he had come into the high priest's palace and uh, we're, in, we're in the palace of Caiaphas now so down in verse 69 it says and now Peter sat without it tells us in the palace and a damsel that's a young girl if you're wondering a damsel came to him saying thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. Now, also, we're told that John's family knew the high priest Caiaphas and did business with him. So John, we find out, is there in the precincts of the, the priest's palace. And the girl, no doubt, knows him from visits he had made there with his father. So it says that the damsel came to him saying, Thou also, because she knew John was one of his disciples, was with Jesus. But he denied before them saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter, Satan loves a boaster, doesn't he? 
though all the rest of them deny you, Lord, I will never deny you. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even recognize the guy. Verse 71 says, And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid, not the same one, saw him and said unto him that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. Now when you combine the four Gospels, there's there's about three or four accusations in very fast succession. It, it seems total, there was probably about six denials when you put all of the pictures together. But here he gets peppered again as he moves position to a different part of the courtyard. And then finally, this seems to be the last accusation. It says, and again, he denied with an oath, saying, I, I don't know the man. So that's with this series of accusations that had come. Now he's saying again, I don't know him. And now he's saying, I swear I know him. You trust me. I'll put me under oath. I don't know the guy, you know. Verse 73 then says, and after a while, Peter's getting tired of this, no doubt, came unto him they that stood by, and they said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. You didn't have a southern draw, you had a northern draw. So obviously you're a Galilean. Luke tells us, and John 18, 26, that the one who came at this point and said, you're one of them, that he was a relative of Malchus, whose ear Peter had chopped off. So some guy in his family said, you look awful familiar to me. You know, got any blood on your sword? You know, certainly you're one of them also. Peter must really be feeling the pressure at this time, especially if he recognizes this is part of the, the, the family of the servant of the high priest. Verse 74 says, Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. Now, curse and swear, what it, what it says here, he, he pronounced an anathema upon himself. He finally gets the strongest denial. We would say, I'll be damned if I know this guy. But it's not the slang that we would say it today. It's I'll be eternally damned is the idea. He's actually, as a Jew, pronounces an anathema on himself and says, I'll be eternally damned if I know him. Trying to show them how sincere he is in his denial that he doesn't know this one. And then, of course, it says, immediately the rooster crows. That was his cue. Immediately the rooster crows. You know, here's the interesting thing. There was a jurisdiction in this day, a law passed, and by the religious leadership, there were no chickens allowed in Jerusalem. Because they poop anywhere they want. They're dirty. You know, they're just dirty animals. So they didn't, you couldn't have chickens inside the city walls. So this is either a chicken with a really loud voice, a rooster, and when, the, when, 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 you know, when God the Father hears Peter swear, I don't know him, he pulls on his tail or something, outside the city. Or this is, again, Rambo Rooster who sneaks in and he gets in position and he's ready to go. But soon as Peter does that, the rooster crows. Part of that is, is it's early morning now. It's b before light, but... 
This rooster then crows, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, when Peter said, the rest may deny, I'll never deny you. Jesus said to him, before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice, in three different circumstances, not necessarily three specific times. Um, Thou shalt deny me thrice, and then he went out and he wept bitterly. Luke tells us this. Luke says, um, after the space of about an hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. Matthew's rendition is, Your, your speech betrayeth thee. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crows, you will deny me thrice. And then he says, and what Matthew does, Peter went out and wept bitterly. The the beautiful thing here is in John chapter 1, verse 42, uh, when, you know, some of the guys are disciples of John the Baptist, James, John, Andrew, and John the Baptist had pointed his finger, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he had directed his young disciples towards Jesus. So it says those guys started to follow Jesus, and he turns around at them, and he looks at them and said, what do you want? And they went, uh, bah, 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 where do you live? <laughs> That's what you want? Where do you and Jesus took them, and they sat together alone with him for several hours. What questions did they ask? What did John mean when he said, you're the Lamb of God that takes away this? And, what and when they came out of that meeting, Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon and says, we have found the Messiah. So you can imagine what that conversation was like. And then Peter comes and, uh, and Jesus looks at him and says, you're, you're Simon. I'm changing your name to Peter, to Rocky. But it says Jesus looked at him. That's our word here in Caiaphas's house and it means he looked down into him and Jesus does that with us he sees in us those things that we would try to say are not there and there ain't no use doing that because he sees you might as well say Lord I'm angry at you why would you do this to me or Lord I'm I'm wrestling with this or Lord I'd like to punch this person or Lord you might as well be honest and bring that into the open because he sees it anyway he sees it anyway but the other thing he sees when he looks into us is he sees the potential in our own lives that we can't see about ourselves and that others can't see about us And he looked at Peter in John chapter 1, and he looked down into him. And he said, there's a rock there. It's going to take years to develop, but there is a rock there. You're going to say to me, not so, Lord, three times in in the book of Acts after you deny me three times. And Paul's going to have to rebuke you before the church of Antioch for your your bad, uh, for your heresy. But 
I know there's a rock there, and Peter, I can see it, and I can see what's in you, you know. Um, Peter denies him here the three times, and Luke says, Jesus turned his head. When this rooster crows, Peter remembers. That's what he said, I deny him three times, and their eyes meet. And you have to try to imagine what that was like, because... Peter was probably close enough for Jesus to hear him cursing. If their eyes meet, there's torches. There's enough light for them to see one another. As he turns and he makes eye contact with Christ, his eyes are all swollen. He's bloody. His beard has been ripped out. And the look of Jesus Christ had to be incredibly judicial and incredibly merciful and gracious at the same time, our dear Savior. And it says when he looked at Peter, uses the same word, he looked down into him. It's almost as though his look could have said two things. One, I told you, I told you. But the other look said, but I can still see that rock down inside of you, Peter. You know, sometimes I think when we deny him, I did in 1975 once, you know, you're supposed to laugh at that because we're all made of the same stuff here. Uh, you know, when we, whatever it may be, decline from his will, whatever it may be, you know, I think the enemy then would love to lie to us and tell us, Man, God got a lemon when he picked you. He didn't know what he was getting into when he picked you. But I think when we still ourselves and we get before him, we still, he still says to us, I still see the rock there. I still see that solid thing there. Peter denies him and he runs out into the night. He's weeping bitterly, it tells us sobbing, crying. I believe he loved Christ. And he gets that look from him. He runs out weeping. The interesting thing is, Luke tells us on the morning of the resurrection, the women came and said, we saw angels at the tomb. And they said, go tell, they said, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's risen. Peter must have thought, my name is Mud. When the angel said, and Peter, are you kidding me? Because the last time you saw me, I cursed and, you know, and Peter. That means when the angels were leaving the throne of Almighty God, go reveal yourself to the women, send them to the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure you mention Peter specifically. <laughs> it's so remarkable. And Peter must have thought, that's it, I'm done. And then we know that Christ went and found him. When the two guys from Emmaus get back to Jerusalem that resurrection day and sat alone with him and talked to him. The old rock. What did he say? You know, I don't know. Shalom. Shalom, Peter. There's peace now. I've paid the price. The Lamb of God. Peter would say in his first epistle again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, who hath begotten us again unto a living hope 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said, that day I encountered him. God the Father in that encounter, according to his abundant mercy, had begotten me again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says as he signs off in 2 Peter chapter 3 around verse 17, he, he says, take heed lest ye also be moved from your own steadfastness. What does he mean also? Because that's what had happened in his life. The last thing he says to us, take heed lest ye also be moved from your own steadfastness. But this doesn't mean he's done with us when that happens. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that there are good works foreordained that we should walk in them. We are his poema, his workmanship. He wasn't done with Peter. Peter on Pentecost would stand and thousands of people would turn to Christ. He'd give testimony before the Sanhedrin, the same people he's afraid of here, and he lies in front of when he's filled with the Holy Ghost. And the, and the man that was healed, the crippled man, he stands before them and gives an incredible testimony of Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit before this. And God wasn't done with them at all. Important for us to see as we look at this. Because we're all going to face the failings, the difficulties, the imperfections of our own lives in this journey. The Holy Spirit is working to conform us into the image of God's Son is always going to graciously point out and say, that ain't much like Jesus, what you just said, what you just did. And in this world, when we get that kind of criticism that goes to the heart, we can tend to throw in the towel and quit, right? I mean, you grow up, you know, you grow up, little kid, you know, you look and you can't wait till I can eat that. I'm so sick of Gerber's, you know. I want to start to eat that. And then you finally, you know, you kind of get out of your diapers and you kind of get, and you're going to go have a real dinner. Then you have to sit at the kids' table, right? And then you're thinking, someday I'm going to sit at that adult table with those big people. And I'm going to, you know, you know. Then finally you're allowed to go sit at the adult table, and they say, you've grown so fast, we wouldn't even recognize you. All your years you're waiting to get there. Now they don't know who you are, <laughs> right? Everything that comes your way is at what grades did you get in school? Are your parents yelling at you because you didn't get? Well, you got a C. You could have got a B in that class. You know, just and then your boss, and then there's the police. Everything in life kind of measures us right from the beginning, right? But the Holy Spirit, when He does that, He does it to push us towards Jesus. Condemnation feels the same, but that pushes us away from Jesus. That's from the devil. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit, and it pushes us to Jesus. And Peter was pushing that direction. We're going to see Judas go in the other direction. Both of them were deniers. Both of them were deniers. Chapter 27 says, Now, when morning was come... All of the chief priests and elders of the people, they took counsel against Jesus.
to put him to death. This is the third trial. Now, first at the house of Annas, then at the house of Caiaphas, both illegal. Now, this is a council that they're allowed to have once the sun comes up, and they're at the judgment hall in the temple precincts now at, at this third trial. Very interesting. And as they meet here, they are looking for false witness. They're still looking to indict him. That's not why it wasn't legal for them to gather that way. That's not why they were allowed to come together. And look, they want to pass the death sentence and their own statutes, their own law, the Sanhedrin, 71 members, the 70 and the high priest, what they said was this. If there's a vote, and they had to do that, before they could vote on whether somebody was guilty of death, they had to take the night. They had to think on it and dream on it. They couldn't just hear the evidence and make a death decision. So as they gather in the morning, understand if they were unanimous, this guy needs to be put to death, they couldn't execute the death sentence. There had to be at least two that disagreed because if they were unanimous on the death sentence, there was no mercy. And that was wrong. So there had to be at least two members of this court, the Sanhedrin, that said, this is wrong, we can't do this. And it may have been Joseph of Marathia and Nicodemus, I don't know. So they gather now at the Hall of Judgment in the temple. This is the Sanhedrin, the third now trial, which is a religious trial. Uh, Luke 22 tells us this. He gives us some other details. Um, it says here, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes, that's a complete Sanhedrin, uh, came together and led him into their council. They said, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. If I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, you said it. You say that I am, which is an affirmative. And they said, what need have we any further? We ourselves have heard this from his own mouth. That's what takes place in verse 1 here. Verse 2, 27. It says, and when they had bound him, imagine that, Jehovah God bound no greater demonstration of man's hatred for God, no greater demonstration of God's love for man. What an interesting picture. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him now to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now this is the fourth trial that we come to. Matthew does something now. He breaks and goes to Judas in his suicide. Um, Luke tells us that he, at this point, heard that he was a Galilean, so he sends him uh, to Herod. That was his jurisdiction. This first meeting with Pilate could have been 10 minutes. As soon as they get him in there, 
and, and Pilate's not happy with these people anyhow. John tells us in his gospel they refused to enter into Pilate's palace because he was a Gentile, and they knew if they went into his house, they'd be defiled and couldn't celebrate the Passover. They could kill the Messiah, but they're worried about, you know. So then Pilate, it says, has to come out to them. He's not in a good mood. Soon as Pilate hears that, he, that he's from Galilee, he knows he's under Herod's jurisdiction, and he just sends him away to Herod, which is the fifth trial and then we're going to see when he comes back to uh, back to Pilate again, that's the sixth and final trial. So this is really interesting. Now, Pilate is a guy that we all kind of uh, are familiar with to some degrees. Uh, some say he was born a slave and that he purchased his citizenship in Rome. We're not sure. We know that he was born in Seville, Spain. He becomes, as he has citizenship and grows, he becomes part of the equestrian order of the Ponti clan. So Pontius Pilotus from the Ponti clan. And he's a royal knight of that order. He serves as a tribune in the 12th Roman legion in Syria. And he was a tough commander, but a ruthless administrator. He got things done but at any cost. He didn't care who was injured as he pushed what need to take place. He earns a reputation for his toughness, for his ability to get things done. And then he marries a woman, Claudia Procula, who is the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. Now that helps too when you're in politics. If you marry Caesar Augustus's granddaughter, that's a plus. That's not a negative. You know, hardly. When you look at the uprightness of the political scene today, it's hard to believe anything could happen like that. But it happened back in this time. He was appointed then. He has a friend, Lucius Alias Secundus. You knew that. I'm just reminding you. And his friend was the prefect. He was friends with Tiberius Caesar, who's Caesar at this point, and he makes him prefect of uh, the, the personal guard of Caesar, the Praetorian guard. So of all your positions in the military, you know, generals that operate in the field in battle, they were held in high esteem. But the most prestigious position is to be prefect of the Praetorian Guard right in the Caesar, Caesar's palace itself. And this guy's the head of the toughest military guys that guard the very life of Caesar. And he's personal friends with, um, with Pilate, and he knows him from their history in the military. So he influences Tiberius, Caesar, to make him both prefect and governor of Judea. Josephus tells us in Judea about 7 million Jews in, throughout the entire ter territory at this point in time. And it was a troubled territory. Tiberius Caesar makes him prefect and governor because Judea is the gateway to the grain in Egypt, which is 
of utmost importance to Rome and to the troops and so forth because of the ports there, Caesarea by the sea, and then on to Rome. So he has a tough job. He doesn't like the Jews. He comes into a territory where there's riots, there's trouble, there's all kinds of things that go on. And as he comes into the district, he comes in at night, and he goes to the Antonio Fortress, which is adjoined to the Temple Mount. And he puts up the flags of the standards of his soldiers, his his Praetorian Guard there as well. And some of them have Caesar's pictures, some of them have eagles and so forth. When the Jews wake up in the morning, they go crazy because there's an image. You know, and to them, that's idolatry, and they can see it from the temple mouths. And Pilate gets so aggravated, he goes back to Caesarea by the sea, which is normally where he stayed. It's where his palace was there. And 7,000 Jews come from Jerusalem and surround his palace and refuse to leave until he takes down those banners and so forth and, and the standards in the Antonio Fortress. Now, this guy is a tough soldier. He was a tribune. He has a bad attitude. And he decides, go tell them, I'm going to kill them. If they don't leave and get out of here, I'm going to slaughter them. So the Jews, they know how mean this guy is. Instead of leaving, they all lay on the ground and they bare their throats. They say, we would rather die. Now, Caesar's hoping there's not going to be trouble in the district. He's hoping that Pilate's going to be able to handle some of this. So Pilate is so angry, he finally relents. He sends him back to Jerusalem, and he, and he takes down the standards. But he's not a happy camper. He's not a happy, a happy camper. And there's trouble all the time during his jurisdiction. Um, interesting, the Bible critics told us throughout this century that, yeah, there's record of Caligula and of Tiberius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. There's no record anywhere of a Pontius Pilate. The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, as the critics always do. But the archaeologist always makes the liar out of the critic. Uh, When they built the Aswan Dam in Egypt, the Nile River, and in Isaiah, there's prophecies about the Aswan Dam and the ecological things that would take place. But one of the things that happened is it slowed the Nile down to the point that the silt that normally washed up along the coast of Israel as, as, the, as the current went north from the Nile and so forth, and it had built up these huge sand dunes all along the beach there. And an Israeli helicopter pilot looked down and saw this big, like, horseshoe shape, huge, in the sand. So the archaeologists came in, they started to excavate, and they found the theater, Caesarea. They found the whole city of Caesarea underneath there. And, of course, as they were excavating, they found a, a, um, a plaque carved of stone. It's about this big. It's there. The, the, actually, the, the, the original's in the museum, but the copy of it is there. And it says something about this, this um, governor... Pontius Pilotus. And in 1962, again, the Bible was proved true, and the critics had to go home again with their tail between their legs. 
that Pontius Pilate, in fact, was the governor there in the area, and he lived at Caesarea. He bangs heads with the Jews over and over, and finally he, he, uh, he decides that he wants to... There's so much blood on the Temple Mount, thousands and tens of thousands of animals. So there was an aqueduct that came a thousand miles. If you, if you, when you go to Israel today, you can't believe they set this up with levels. They figured out how much pitch, how much fall they would le- need, so how high it had to be on the northern end to bring water all the way down the coast. Incredible. But he built a, a line uh, uh, for water 32 miles from Judah. When we first used to go, we used to be able to get down and see these the big reservoirs that were built there to bring water up to the Temple Mount. He didn't have the money to do it. Rome wouldn't give him the money, so he dresses a bunch of his soldiers up like Jews, sends them on the Temple Mount so they can start a riot, and there's a big battle with clubs. People are bleeding, everybody's screaming, they're clubbing each other. While they're doing that, Pilate sends some of his soldiers into the treasury in the temple and steals the money necessary to build... The, the, the aqueduct from the south up to the north. And of course, the Jews are not happy about that at all. He broke into our treasury, stole money, and uh, at that point he gets sent back to Rome. Uh, his friend is killed, Lucius Alias Secundus, who would take over the throne when Tiberius Caesar would travel. Tiberius came back and heard rumors that he was trying to take his position and had him killed. So Pilate no longer has an ally in Rome, and Caligula takes over, and he tells Pilate, no more trouble, or you're done. I want no more trouble. So now Pilate is being thrown into a situation by the Jews. He doesn't want there to be a riot. It's going to tell us as we go on to study tonight, he knows they're there because, for envy, his wife is going to come to him and say, Honey, you don't have nothing to do with this righteous man. I had this dream tonight. Blew my mind. And the, and the Romans and the Greeks were very superstitious about dreams and so forth. So this guy doesn't have any easy place in the whole thing. And finally, you know, he gets so frustrated, he says, Bring me a basin. He says, I wash my hands of this whole thing. My name's not going to be involved at this. He has little, does he know, that for thousands of years the Apostle Creed is going to say crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, and buried, rose on the third. You know, just so, um, it, it, you know, he's an interesting guy as we come. Like politicians today, these are all very human people that are aggravated in different ways, that have different pensions, that have, you know, lack of. Uh, civility in certain ways, and certainly this guy is one of those. So they bring him to Pilate, it says here, the governor and the prefect, he's both. And it says, then, now it just skips now from this back to Judas. It says, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, Jesus was condemned, Repented himself. Now, that's not our New Testament word for repentance, metanoia, where there's repentance and salvation. This is a specific word that means he had remorse. He had remorse. He was sorry. He saw they, they, they condemned him to death. And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, 
I have sinned in that I have betrayed, and your translation should say this, the innocent blood. It was really interesting. It doesn't just say, I betrayed innocent blood. There's a definite article. I have betrayed the innocent blood. If there has ever been innocent blood, it is this blood, and I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said to him, what does that have to do with us? You worry about that. That's your problem. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. This is the sanctuary. This is the inner sanctuary. You know, it's hard to believe that the religious leaders had taken him in there. Only the priests, Levites, ever were supposed to be in there. They had taken him in there because they didn't want the people to know they were plotting to kill Jesus. So, you know, they're breaking every rule there is possibly. They bring him then. It says, in the sanctuary where he throws down the pieces of silver in the temple. And then he departed. And he went and he hanged himself. And we don't know what that means. Hanging was not a normal means of death in this day. Um, He may have hung himself with a rope. We know somehow he's on some type of a tree or a branch. He may have impaled himself. One of the other Gospels tell us that then he fell down. We don't know if he ripened there first, but ultimately he fell down and his bowels burst forth all over the ground. This was a mess. Satan is rejoicing. The interesting thing is to look at two people, both of them in great despair, Peter and Judas. The only difference is they were both sinners, both men, both made of the same stuff both betrayed Jesus, as we may at times. But one of them believed, in fact, that Jesus was who he said he was, and the other one did not. Judas did not believe. Judas was discouraged. Judas thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government. Judas had preconceived idea completely different. Peter understood something vastly different. Both of them betrayed him. One went out and wept and repented and was used of the Lord. The other one hanged himself. And Satan loves, and Christians, there are Christians that have taken their lives. I don't believe it's the unpardonable sin. But the idea is Satan rejoices. He, he loves to push somebody through whatever the circumstances may be, over that ledge. And look, so often betrayal, and betrayal cuts us. The deepness of that wound is relative to the familiarity of the betrayer. The closer the person is to us, the more it hurts when we're betrayed. But the one we run to then is Jesus. We have the fellowship of his sufferings. Betrayed by somebody who walked with him for three years, saw all of his miracles, who went out and raised the dead and healed the sick with the power he gave him. He was, you know, he he was there the whole time, Judas. And I believe it hurts the heart of Christ when he betrayed him. I think it was both predicted, he was predestined, And I also believe 
if he'd have fallen on his face and said, Lord, forgive me, that he could have had forgiveness. Do I understand how both of these things happen? Nah. I was just a druggie who got saved. I don't understand any of this stuff. <clears throat> now look, <clears throat> this says the chief priests took the, the silver pieces and said, you know, it's not lawful to put them back into the treasury. Here's the guys that just beat and spit on the Messiah and trumped up all kinds of false accusations and, and uh, you know, broke all kinds of their own rules to do this and now they're concerned about 30 pieces of silver. That's not lawful for us to do. You know, we better, we gotta fall. Why don't we get the rule book out again? What's it say? We gotta just, the hypocrisy is incredible. It's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood and they took counsel, they actually counseled together, and they bought with them the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field. A potter's field was a place where there was a, a decent amount of clay where the potters would go and get clay for their pottery. They bought a potter's field to bury strangers in, which was the religious leader's responsibility in that day. There was no you know, social systems the way we have it today. There was none of that thing. So it was the priest's responsibility to make sure that foreigners, people who died, were taken care of properly and they were buried. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood. I think it's Acts that tells us, Akaladama, the field of blood unto this day. Now, 9 and 10 are difficult verses. Um, we're going to knock off after 10 because we have two minutes left. It says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had appointed me. Now, um, it says Jeremiah spoke this, um, but we know it's from Zechariah. So the question is, why is it saying Jeremiah? Is it something that Jeremiah spoke that wasn't recorded in the book of Jeremiah? Could possibly. We don't know that. Zechariah is quoted four times in the New Testament. Twice in Matthew. Twice in John's Gospel. And in none of those places is the quotation attributed to Zechariah. So the issue seems to be that the book of Zechariah, the Jews had it in the scroll of Jeremiah. So it's always often then said, Jeremy the prophet said, though it was in Zechariah's prophecy, it was in the scroll of Jeremiah. Very interesting. Zechariah was the one that spoke of the 30 pieces of silver. Jeremiah is the one who tells us about the potter's field. Is it just speaking about half of that being in Jeremiah's scroll? We don't know. We don't know. It, it seems to be that the way they kept records and as the scrolls were written that Zechariah, some of the minor prophets, were in the scroll of Jeremiah, and which would certainly be then ascribed, it could be in, in, in their writing there, it could be then ascribed to 
um, Jeremiah. And it tells us this. We can end here. We can go a minute over. You don't have to be anywhere. Luke 23 is the one who tells us. Now we 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 went from um, we went from Pilate's place to where he hands him then over to be taken to um, Herod, and we're told in Luke chapter 23. Uh, you don't have to go there. It says this. It says, and when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at this time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. So this is the fifth trial now. He was exceeding glad because he was desirous to see him for a long season because he had heard of the many things done of him and had hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, said him at naught, mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and then sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before that they had been at enmity with one another. So isn't it interesting how political people can be, become friends, mocking Jesus together? It's just interesting. Things have not changed. That goes on today, by the way, in case you're wondering. Okay, that brings us to verse 11, which is the sixth and final trial. If the Lord tarries, um, we'll be there next week. Uh, if not, um, you can ask Barabbas or somebody else about it who happened to, who happened to get in a little late, but who got in. Um, pictures, politics, cooking everywhere like they are today but God in control. Men determining it has to happen this way, religious people determining it has to happen that way, but the prophets of old said this is the way things will be. And the prophets of old and the prophets of the New Testament have said that about the day that you and I are living in, that this is the way it's going to be. And uh, that is what is immutable. That is what will not change. Um, getting into a situation where boasting, Lord, you can you can count on me. You know, I understand there's a lot of other uh, lightweights around, but you can count. You know, Satan loves to 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 take us down when we're boasters. So, if you found yourself in that situation and you ain't all you thought you were, Jesus already knew you ain't all he you thought you were before you proved you ain't all that you thought you was. Um, you can go to him, you know. When that denial, those those lapses in our loyalty, when we break down to whatever extent it is, there's the Judas who goes out and commits suicide because he doesn't really have hold of the one whom he denied. Then there's the believer who realizes, no, Lord, I did it again. Would you forgive me? And we find his mercies are new every morning. We find that the blood of Christ paid for our frailty. 
and our failures 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished, paid in full. He doesn't have a mortgage on us. He's already paid the whole thing off. And we can rest there. And we have to learn to rest there because no one has ever loved us the way he loves us. And if we don't receive his love by faith, we'll never enjoy it. We'll never enjoy it. Politics, religious leaders, all of that remains the same. Human personalities, you know, scandal, um, wolves and snakes, and, you know, it's all of that. But in the middle of it, God is on the throne. He has us where we are. There's lessons we're to learn from all of this and take it to heart. And let's finish our course well. Amen? Amen. Let's finish well. Sometimes I can get really discouraged. Sometimes I can get really broken down. Sometimes you can get in a mood where you could do something stupid, and it just seems if you fall on him and you take a deep breath and you wait till the sun comes up the next day, seems things can seem a lot better and get back in perspective again. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray while we'll the musicians come. And look, maybe somebody here tonight is in that place. You know, if so, just grab somebody that you know or just say to them, look, I, I was in a lot of this is really something I need to take a hold of. And just pray with somebody before you leave. Your mom didn't call here and tell us what trouble you were in so we would preach on it. None of that happened. If it's happening to you, it's the Holy Ghost. And that's the wonderful, wonderful Savior that we serve. Father, I know you've overheard. And Lord, we're your children and we can pout, we can fail, we can be disobedient. You've been raising kids for thousands of years, Lord. And I don't imagine really there's anything we could do that would shock you. But Lord, we want to walk close. We want to take hold of your garment and not let go. We want to, with David, say, lead me in the way everlasting. Or take me by your hand and lead me. Whether I'm kicking or screaming, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, here are our hearts and our minds before you afresh, Lord. Afresh, Lord. Fresh start. A fresh measure of your grace. A fresh bath in your forgiveness and your shed blood. A new beginning right here this evening, Lord. Let it be. Let it be for me. Let it be for all of us. This is your word. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. Your word is never going to pass away. And we're thankful. Give us our portion this evening, Lord Jesus. We look to you and we pray in your name. Amen.